We are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, if you'd like to make your way there. We've made our way as far as verse 33 together here on Sunday morning. In the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels, Good News. Written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of the four write from a different perspective and emphasizing a different aspect of the person of Jesus Christ. For example, when John wrote, he wrote that you may believe. It was his hope and, uh, and uh, desire that at the end of the gospel that you would come into a saving faith relationship with Jesus Christ. When Luke wrote, he wrote his gospel to one individual named Theophilus. Theophilus was a wealthy Greek individual at that time, and Luke appears to be a physician that was in his um, employment. And Luke became a Christian first, and then Theophilus did. And Luke wanted to record for Theophilus everything that Jesus did in a concise, methodological, or uh, a very decise and distinctive pattern in which Theophilus could truly understand and therefore have certainty concerning all that Jesus has come to say and to do. Luke then also went on then to write the book of Acts, which showed what happened through the hands of the apostles, the 12 that Jesus called to himself, the disciples. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, the disciples continued the ministry here on this earth and demonstrated that even though Jesus was in heaven, the work continued in and through the hands of the disciples. And of course, that carries into the church today. Jesus continuing what he started through the church today, as we have become the hands and the feet of Jesus, taking the good news to people who have not heard it, and and uh, welcoming those who are broken and hurting and and allowing them to see that Jesus has made God accessible to everyone who will come to him. As we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves currently in the region of Galilee. It is in the area of Capernaum in the northeastern section of the Sea of Galilee, and in the region of Galilee, there are about 200 small cities and villages. At that time, it was one of the most populated areas of Israel. Over two million people lived in this region, and it's in this region that Jesus did most of his teaching, and it's in this region that Jesus did most of his miracles. And we were following Jesus from a very distinct point in which Luke brings to our attention where Jesus declares in the synagogue there in that region that he is the fulfillment of the prophetic promises and prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. And now Luke goes on to substantiate that for us, showing and recording for us all that Jesus said and did to substantiate the fact that he is truly the one in whom God has sent into this world to draw people unto himself. Jesus was warmly welcomed by almost everybody that he encountered. Very few rejected him. It is interesting to me that the ones that rejected him the most consistently and with the most fervency were the religious leaders of that time. 
ones who should have embraced Jesus. Yet they were the ones that openly rejected him and tried to denounce him and discredit him at every point in which they could. He wasn't their profiled Messiah that they had suspected would come. For 400 years, God was silent to the nation of Israel between the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And as a result, things got very twisted in that 400 years. The religious leaders desperately tried to hold on to the power in which they at one time enjoyed, but yet with the Roman oppression and that preceding it by the Greek oppression, they were really discredited in the eyes of the people. And so they needed to tell the people what they wanted to hear to have the people continue following them and submitting to their authority and to their power. So to give the people a hope, which was a false hope, they created a profile of who they believed the Messiah would be and what he would do and what he would look like when he came. Little did they know that Jesus was coming, who didn't fit their profile whatsoever. And as a result, they wanted to reject him at every moment they could due to the fact that he was a constant reminder of the lack of authority and the lack of power and the lack of closeness to God that they actually had in the region. Jesus threatened the religious uh, status quo at every aspect of his personal life at that time. What Jesus did was nothing more than radical. That's the best word that I can use to describe it. Everything he did was biblical, Everything he did fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. But because expectations had been so distorted by the false profile in which the religious leaders gave the people that when the Messiah, when Jesus actually did come, they didn't recognize him. And therefore wouldn't acknowledge him and wouldn't submit to his authority. And as a result, they were greatly confused by the manner in which it seemed every, uh, everybody else embraced him. Now, there did come a point in the ministry of Jesus when the individuals who were simply following him for the food that he provided or the miracles in which he wrought and brought about, when he then called them to commitment, when he called them to discipleship, many of them abandoned him at that time. However, though, the religious leaders never once again regained the power in which they once held after Jesus Christ had come to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are now absolutely baffled because last week we discovered that Jesus called an individual to be his disciple that society had absolutely deemed one who was irredeemable. One who is so far from God that there is no possible way that God could ever, ever save and love a person like that. He's a tax collector. He's introduced to us as Levi, who, which we now know is Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was a corrupt individual that was taking his countrymen for every dollar in which he could. He was hated by the populace of Galilee. 
And the only friends that he did have were other tax collectors and individuals that the Bible calls sinners, which I got to be honest with you, I call my friends, all right? In that culture, a sinner was one that lived in rebellion to everything that the religious leaders stood for, including the law at that time. This was the group of people that I grew up with and that I was part of before Jesus reached down and radically changed my life. And they would interact with these people. And after Matthew begins to follow Jesus, gets saved, and begins to understand who Jesus is, he decides to have a party with all of his friends that the society and the world has simply cast out. And Jesus takes the invitation and begins to eat and drink with them, talking with them, ministering to them, and showing that God is accessible to them through him. One of the greatest acts of grace ever. And Jesus, propelled by love, was willing to interact with these people, and so were the disciples of Jesus. And as a result, guess who objected? The religious leaders. They couldn't believe it. Doesn't Jesus know that he's going to defile himself if he hangs out with such people? Doesn't Jesus know that no one's going to respect him or follow him and he's going to become unclean before God because he's eating with individuals like tax collectors and prostitutes and, and drug users and, and so on and so forth? How, you know, how is it possible that he could openly discredit himself in such a way and so the religious leaders target the disciples and they say, listen, does he not know what he is doing? But yet Jesus clearly says, if you look with me in verse 31, and Jesus answered all of them, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I wish many churches would remember the fact that Jesus always made God accessible to people. Anybody who is interested or inquiring or sincere about knowing God, it didn't matter what kind of personal condition that they were in, God always allowed individuals through Christ to come and to know who he is. You know, I pray that our church never loses that dimension, that we always allow people to see that God is accessible here at Calvary through Christ. As a result, therefore, I believe then we fulfill and continue the ministry of Jesus here on this earth. God's not interested in perfect people. First of all, he won't find any. God's interested in broken people. God's interested in people that the world has cast to the side. Jesus is interested in people who the world has deemed irredeemable. And God says, oh, wait, I haven't gotten a hold of them yet. I say that because that's who I was. I was a 16-year-old kid who meant nothing in this world. I was headed for real trouble, as many of you know. And God reached down from heaven through a loving biker who grabbed me by the shirt 
lifted me up off the ground because he could do that. He was a big guy. Put me against the wall and told me I needed Jesus or my life was going to go down the toilet. You know, the gospel can be presented in many different ways. He had an eloquent way of saying it. But it was enough for me that night to pray with him and to receive Jesus Christ. I wish that people in America would remember that, that all of us had come from that broken background. None of us were perfect people. None of us were righteous in our own efforts and in our own minds before God. It was only God who made us righteous. It's only God who made us acceptable. It's only God that began a work in us that he has promised to complete. And each one of us, therefore, are a simple work of God in progress. And as Jesus is interacting with these individuals, the the religious leaders are criticizing him for it, and apparently the disciples join in. And because there appears from the other gospel accounts and also history, joviality, that they were having a good time with these people. Now again, they weren't just simply partying it up. They were uh, listening to the words of Jesus. Jesus was talking with them. He was ministering to them. He was loving them. He was showing them that through him, they too could have a relationship with God. And as a result, people began to further criticize. Well, why are you so jovial? And why is it that your disciples don't fast like the disciples of John the Baptist before and the disciples of the Pharisees? Fasting was a manner in which you could reveal and demonstrate your piety and your righteousness to the individuals around you. Often it was done for the purpose of gaining self-righteousness in the person's own eyes and in the eyes of others. But fasting was also often done to seek the Lord in a time of mourning and in repentance. And they were wondering, these individuals, now we fast and we're mournful and we're in repentance, yet your disciples, they're having a good time. I don't know why some religious people feel and believe that the only way to be righteous before God is to be solemn. Have you ever met a person like that? You know, you're just so grateful to be saved by the Lord. You have so much joy and love and peace in your heart. And then you meet someone and says, Brother, how are you? Is the burden of the Lord on your heart as it is mine? Well, it wasn't until now. Now it is. I don't know about you, but I believe that Christians should be the most joyful people in the entire world. Lord, was that you? I believe that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have every reason to be happy, even if our circumstances don't lend to it. We're saved in Christ. For a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better going forward. I don't believe that because one shows solemnness and, and one shows a, you know, uh, a, a down-in-the-mouth character that they're any more righteous than anyone else. Just, I guess they haven't discovered the joy of the Lord. And that was really the background for what we are about to read today. Why are your disciples so joyful? 
You know, I remember when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ, I was so excited. I met some friends through the church that were also very passionate about Jesus. And again, you know, we looked like Motley Crue. I mean, that's what you're going to have to really imagine that the Lord gives and takes away, you know. And we went out everywhere. And we went to different churches, different denominations. We went to, I don't know how many different youth groups, just encouraging people and, and showing the love of Christ. And we continuously were told by so many, we've never seen people with such joy as you guys have. And we're like, that's pretty sad. Because with Jesus, I got every reason to be joyful. If he can save me, he can save anybody. But there are always those who you will encounter that believe to be sad, to be mournful is more holy or righteous than anything else. And so we pick it up in verse 33. And they, we don't know who these are, most likely the disciples of the Pharisees who were introduced to us previously in our text. The disciples of John, they fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink, meaning they're celebrating. They're having a good time as they're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. They're in there reclining on couches and they're talking about things and, and Jesus is there amongst them and they're joyful. And it's like, what is going on? Well, Jesus said, as he answers here, that it was appropriate for them to do so because he was with them. But there will come a time where they will have to mourn and fast, as others do, after he leaves and is taken away. But he responds in verse 34, if you look there with me, and Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, this was an interesting saying that we really didn't have much historical understanding of until just recently. What Jesus is saying here is that during the Jewish wedding ceremony, which was one of the most celebratory times of a Jewish person's life, the wedding of a Jewish individual didn't last just one day, but it lasted a whole week. And that week prior to the wedding ceremony itself was one of joy and celebration. And the bride and the, I mean, the groom and the bridesmen and the groomsmen would all celebrate in a God-honoring way before the Lord what was yet to take place in the wedding ceremony. And this is an interesting phrase. And we thought at first that Jesus was just simply saying, hey, in such a time of celebration and while I am here with them, it's right for them to celebrate and not to mourn in fasting and not to repent and, and, and to seek the Lord because I'm here with them right now. And that would have been sufficient in and of itself until just recently. In Jerusalem, we discovered in the last 40 years a scroll called the Scroll of Fasting that was from the time of Jesus. And in the Scroll of Fasting, believe it or not, one of the times that the uh, religious leaders had stated was not a time for fasting was during the wedding celebration. It appears that Jesus is referencing that scroll here. 
and stating to them, listen, you even prescribed that this was not the time for fasting, but it's a time of celebration. However, there will come a time after I am taken, a first reference to the crucifixion in the Gospel of Luke, but now is not the time. I don't think there is a question and answer period that transpires that I am not asked about the Christian practice of fasting. What is fasting? What is fasting all about? The New Testament does not command a Christian to fast. Now let us be clear that in the Bible, fasting is always accompanied with prayer. Yet, we are clearly instructed on the practice of fasting. But yet Paul does not necessarily make instruction to any of the churches on how fasting is done over a period of time, leaving, I believe, to the discretion of the individual. I believe fasting is a practice for Christians today. But what is fasting? What is fasting all about? Well, unfortunately, today we have lost the idea of fasting because we've lost the history that led individuals to fast. In the Old Testament, individuals would fast during the Day of Atonement in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish uh, traditions. It was a time when they would remember that God was going to provide atonement for the entire Jewish nation and the human race through his own sacrifice. Yet when the children of Israel experienced the captivity and when they were taken out of their land and brought into the land of Babylon, fasting became a practice that was uh, practiced much more often than just on the Day of Atonement. It appeared that due to the lack of the temple being accessible to the people now that they are in captivity and now they are part of another culture and the temple being destroyed by the Babylonian army, They would use fasting as a method to consecrate themselves unto God. They would pray and fast and look to the direction of the where the temple had once stood, and they would pray in that direction and fast at the exact same time, consecrating themselves over to Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, to God. And as a result, we see that Daniel prayed and fasted. We see Ezra prayed and fasted. We watched Nehemiah pray and fast Wednesday in our study of Nehemiah together. It was a time of seeking the Lord. It was a time of mourning and repentance. And it was a time of asking God to be faithful to the covenant in which God had made with his people. And so fasting, when it came now to the time of Jesus, after the 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew, the religious leaders would fast on uh, Mondays and Thursdays. I guess they didn't like the cafeteria food on those days. And when they fasted, they made one heck of a spectacle of it. On the days of their fasting, they would wear the worst clothes that they could possibly find. Then they would go out dressed in those clothing, and they would enter into the most populated area of the city, the marketplaces, the street corners, and so forth. And then they would begin to moan and complain. Oh, Lord, recognize your servant, for I am fasting before you. And everybody's walking by, great, he's fasting, yeah. 
And they would make such a spectacle of it. I mean, some would bang drums. Oh, Lord, I'm mourning. And then people weren't listening. I'm fasting over here, Lord, you know. And it was crazy town. And people were just like, yeah, that really means a whole lot, doesn't it? And then they would fast at four other random times of the month that they felt led to do so. And again, it was all for self-righteousness and piety and looking more holy than the average person and so forth and showing and displaying to the populace that they were closer to God than anybody else. But it was just a joke. It was ridiculous. And Jesus called them out on it. And you know, when you call a hypocrite out on it, they don't like it. And so they don't understand why Jesus' disciples are celebrating. When John the Baptist came, people were fasting because they were in mourning, they were repenting, they were returning unto God. It was appropriate for them to do so. The disciples of the Pharisees were just simply being taught what to do from what the Pharisees had done by example. But now was a time to celebrate. God was with them. Now was a time to interact and to be joyful and to demonstrate the joy of the Lord to those who were far from God in that society, individuals that had been absolutely written off by the religious leaders and the totality of the society. Not only would the religious leaders not eat with these people, but when they walked the streets of Jerusalem, they would tie their ropes to their body, or their robes to their body so tightly that they were like, you know, a mummy walking down the street. And they were fearful that any portion of their clothing would touch one of these sinners, one of these people, or a Gentile, and then they would have to ceremonially cleanse themselves in a way, once again, to remove that defiled aspect of their life. And yet Jesus just goes in and sits down and starts interacting, having dinner with them. And having dinner with a person was one of the most intimate experiences into the Jewish culture. Because food was placed on the table in a way, a family style, everybody would take a little bit of it. They believed in eating in such a manner together with another person, those two people were becoming one. And Jesus had no problem with that. He let himself be accessible to these people. In verse 35, he does tell them, though, that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken. This is a word in the Greek that is used for arrested and taken away. Uh, he will be crucified. He will be uh, killed. And then, of course, in the third day, he'll shock everybody from them. And then they will fast in those days. Fasting is appropriate for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. The early church practiced fasting when they were seeking the Lord, looking for bondages to be broken. They were asking the Lord to move in mighty and great ways. Paul demonstrated this to us and others. But there are many misconceptions about fasting that I think we also have to address this morning. And first of all, I want to address the number one misconception of all. That fasting in some way makes me more righteous than someone else. That it earns me greater favor and merit with God. Now, 
all the favor and grace and merit that God has has already been given to you in Christ Jesus. So do not think that if you fast, you are earning brownie points, that you're earning God's favor in a special and unique way. That's not the way it works. The second misconception is that fasting will bend God to our will. No, fasting is just the opposite. It's bending us to God's will. Let us not fast and think that because we are fasting that we are going to bend God to our will. It doesn't work that way. But let us not fast, thirdly, because we believe that it will incline God's ear to hear us. I'm fasting, Lord. you got to listen to me now. Look at me. I'm fasting. For God hears you when you cry out to him, regardless. So then why fast? The reason our confusion with fasting is so great is because we often focus on what we are fasting from rather than considering what we are fasting to. Let me explain. Often when individuals choose to fast, they're focusing more on what they're not eating or not sleeping or not drinking. I'm not going to drink any water because I'm fasting. Uh, I'm not going to drink any soda pop because I'm fasting uh, and so forth. And they concentrate on what they're not doing. But when people fasted in the Bible, they fasted from these things, not because of them, but despite of them. They were saying, I'm going to give this period of time over to God And I'm going to bring myself back into the submission of God's will. I'm going to allow God to set my sights on him once again. And I'm going to allow him to refocus me in my time of fasting. Fasting is a time where we consecrate ourselves onto the Lord, where we bring our hearts before him, where we sit at his feet, where we just say, you know, nothing else matters. I'm just want to spend time with the Lord. Now you can do that simply in prayer, but there may be times in your life that you're compelled to fast. And that's why we believe it's an individual prescribed uh, practice that as God leads you to, then do so. When we started this church, Dean and I fasted and prayed, seeking for the Lord's direction and his will. When we Uh, entered this building. We fasted and prayed to see if God was in it and if he would show us because we wanted to know. We needed to know. And yet God honored those prayers and showed us through it, not because of the fasting, but because it's like, Lord, I just want to drown everything out for this moment and just focus on you and just put my heart back on you. And I see that as a more consistent practice of fasting than what I see here in the United States. That's if Christians fasted anymore at all. I don't know how popular it is anymore. Unfortunately, many don't want to self-sacrifice in any area anymore. But as long as we do it in the proper manner, with the proper heart attitude, then I believe that it is a practice in which we should engage in and we should enter into. Because Paul did it, Jesus did it, the disciples did it, fasting and prayer was a part of their Christian culture and experience. But since it is often a time associated with mourning, 
there are times where it appears that God would just have us simply rejoice in what he is doing too. And so that's why I believe being led by the Spirit when we fast and pray and seek the Lord is the appropriate manner in which to do it. But then Jesus moves on quickly to a parable. First, one of the first ones here in Luke, very quickly. Astonishing parable. Notice what he says here. And then he also, verse 36, told them a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires the new for he says the old is good. What in the world is he talking about? One of the misconceptions that the religious leaders had at that time was that in their inaccurate profile of the Messiah, they believed that the Messiah was going to confirm their authority, reestablish their authority over the society, and revitalize the Jewish system under the Mosaic law. But by Jesus doing what he is doing, he's acting contrary to all of that assumption. And Jesus says, I haven't simply come to patch up the old way of doing things, Judaism. And he uses an example that I think most of us can understand uh, and relate to in some way, that if you have an old garment and you use a new piece of material to patch the old garment, eventually when that new piece of material shrinks, the old garment and that patch will rip apart from one another. It doesn't fit properly. I'll never forget being psychologically damaged by patches my mom put on my jeans when I was in school. This was, again, the 1970s and early 80s, so you've got to really reach back into the archives to remember these days. But someone in that time had invented the iron-on patch. And my mom thought this was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so she absolutely loved patching our jeans. And, you know... Our jeans were holier than we were in many ways. I mean, huge holes in our jeans. And then my mom would get out these patches. She would cut them to size. She would then iron them on. Now, the thing about these patches is that once they were ironed on, they never loosened up. They were always stiff. So by the time my parents got, you know, done with a certain pair of pants, my mom specifically I was like that kid from Christmas Story. I can't move my arms and legs. The patches were so stiff, I couldn't even bend my knees. I'd run in gym like a waddling penguin. These patches wouldn't do anything, and they were all over my jeans, everywhere. I mean, it was unbelievable. It's like, just buy me some new jeans. We go to Kmart, just buy me some new jeans. No, we're going to patch them. I'd bring the jeans home, ripped. Well, I can patch that. I was just lucky I got them off before she started with the iron, you know. Jesus says it's inappropriate. No one in that culture would have done such a thing. Also, when it came to wine, when new wine was made, the worst thing you could do is put it in an old wineskin. 
For the old wineskin was just that. It was animal hide that was formed into a bladder to hold the wine, to pour the wine, etc. And after a while, with the it being made of skin, was porous, and the fermentation of the wine would permeate the porousness of the skin. And if you were to put new wine in there, that fermentation would start a chemical reaction and it would begin to expand and the skin would pop, spilling everything. So when you made new wine, you had to put it in new wineskins. You had to put the wine in there in a certain way or the wine would not keep and everything would be lost. And what Jesus is stating here and summing up for us is that he has come to start a brand new thing. He is not here to revitalize the old Jewish system under the Mosaic law. He's going to usher in a brand new covenant through his death and resurrection that is promise agreement between God and man that's going to allow for man not to simply interact with God through a sacrificial system of animals, but to now interact with God through the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God is not interested in a religion relationship with you. He's, in, he's interested in an intimate relationship with you, a personal one. And when I say that, he wants you to interact with him through Christ as you would someone you love dearly. Religion is man's attempts to reach God through his own means. A relationship is structured by God reaching down to us through Christ. And so Jesus is simply telling the people here, look, I'm not here to fix the old. I'm going to start something brand new all together through me. The ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate manner to approach God. For Jesus said it this way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, he uses an interesting word here. And I know we have overachievers with us who like extra credit work and going a little deeper. And if you will indulge me for a couple of minutes, I'd like to take you on a little journey because the word garment there is very significant to our study today. You may think that it is just a word in which Jesus used to illustrate his point. But let us remember that this all began with Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61, stating that he fulfilled verses 1 and 2 and therefore demonstrating that he is the Messiah. By using this word garments, which we discovered now through the revelation of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the 1940s, this word, of, this word garments was translated from a Greek word that was used in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. And it directly links back to a passage in the Old Testament. And that passage is found in Isaiah 61. Chance? Or did God mean to do what he did? Let's take a little journey back into the Old Testament just quickly. For in Isaiah 64, 6, should be on the screen behind me, 
Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted what? Garment. Very interesting. And we all fade like a leaf, and our, uh, and our in- iniquities like the wind take us away. Now notice the word garment there. God, seeing his people, sees that all are in a state of sin and rebellion against him, incapable of saving themselves, adorned with a garment of unrighteousness before him. You can hear the lavish words used here and the picturesque words used here. But we are going to realize in just a moment another purpose of the coming of the Messiah. I gave you this verse first in 64 because that's where the thought is concluded. But all of us stand guilty before God and are in need of a Savior. None of us are perfect to get into heaven in and of ourselves. Our good deeds will never outweigh our bad deeds no matter how hard we try. We all need a Savior before God. God sees us as one who is polluted by sin and that sin and unrighteousness has no place before a perfect and holy God. And in and of ourselves, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We can try all that we want to do. And we can try to muster up some methodology and we can try to convince ourselves that we are better than the person sitting next to us and then therefore when we die and approach God, God will accept us saying, oh yes, I, I, I know, you were so much better than that other person sitting next to you in church. Holy cow, come on in. The standard for eternal life with God in heaven is perfection and all of us fail in that regard. All of us will stand before God God, in and of ourselves with a coat of full, dirty rags before him of unrighteousness and of sin. But Jesus says, I'm not here to patch the old garment. I'm here to do something completely new. I'm going to do away with it all. And notice what he says as we Venture on to Isaiah 61.10. Just further from the two verses in which he read in the synagogue before the people. Concerning the Messiah when he comes. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of what? When you come to Christ, when you put your faith and trust in him, he takes that old filthy garment off of you and places a brand new one upon you that he has satisfied before God. This is how perfection is obtained, not in what I do, but in what Christ has done. So what he says here to all of these people, I'm not here to patch up the old garment. I'm here to give you a brand new one. I'm going to take that filthy garment of unrighteousness and sin and everything you've ever done contrary to God. I'm going to put that one on my shoulders and take it to the cross. And I'm going to pay for it there. 
and my blood's going to wash it away. Not just simply cover it like the Old Testament animal's bloods would do, kofar, cover the sin. I'm washing it away completely. Once and for all, it's gone. That was a great place for an amen. Totally blew it. We're going to have to get a new congregation in here next week. And notice what he says. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As what? As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Any wonder why he referred to the wedding when he says now is not the time for us to fast? Because Messiah is here. Now you may think that, hey, here we go. Do we have this verified in the New Testament? We sure do. Look at what Paul says. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. For our sake, he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might in him be, become the righteousness of God. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to end with this this morning. Starting in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 8. This concept of being robed with the righteousness of Jesus is a New Testament concept that permeates throughout the entire New Testament portion of the Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to what Paul states. But now you must put them all away, that is, anger and wrath and malice and slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and we have put on the new self, which is, the, is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body and to be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus Christ provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves before God. And you simply need to embrace him, believe in him, put your faith and trust in him, repent of your sins before him, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, the Bible tells us. 
He will take that garment of filthy rags off of you. Does that mean you're going to be perfect from that day forward? Not practically, but positionally before God in Christ. Though here on this earth, I'm still a work in progress. I am certainly not perfect at all. I make mistakes each and every day. I am no better than anyone else. But the grace of God, that when I do sin, I'm covered in His righteousness, and therefore, because I am in Christ, I have the capability of being cleansed of that sin and renewed in my relationship with God the Father once again. This is an aspect of Christianity that many people don't believe and understand. I can't save myself, but God can save me from myself. And he desires to do that to any and all that will come to him and before him.